Okay. This is uh, our Biblical Counseling Issues class, and we are currently uh, coming into part two of a study that we have entitled, How to Handle the Past Biblically. Um, I just want to review quickly so that we can remember where we were. I know it's hard just to go to the board and say, what are we doing here? Um, we said that this is an important topic. It's not a topic that a lot of people think of, but it's important because we all have a past and we are all affected by the past to one degree or another. And our pasts are something that can either affect us adversely or they can affect us in a positive way. And often people have very difficult times dealing with their past because if they've had traumas or difficulties or very severe issues, it's hard to know how to let that go or how, how to look at it so that it doesn't hinder the present. So we want to understand how the Lord would want us to look at our past. And as I said, it can be a, a great benefit. And you'll notice on your outline, and I'll go through this quickly. Deborah, you can fill these in because uh, this is on your outline and we kind of went through these, but let me just give them to you. A, first of all, person's past can be of great benefit because it helps us face challenges with strength and confidence. And we know that there are many challenges, and I've given verses there. I'm not going to take the time again this morning to go through those because we've looked at those, and you can chase those down on your own to bring them to your remembrance. Also, the past can help us to handle trials. Uh, we learn from the past, don't we? And so as we go through difficulties... Uh, we can use the past to gain experience for the present. It helps us to forgive. One of the things that often we have to deal with with our past is learning how to forgive or how to be forgiven, actually. It also helps us to apply truth. One of the things about looking back in your life is, you've heard the expression that hindsight is always twenty twenty. Um, you know, a lot of times... Isn't it true we look back at our past and we'll say, oh, if I could do that over again, I, you know, I would have done this. Or, you know, if I just had that day over again, I would have done this. Well, the past helps us to apply truth because we can see it clearly. The past also helps us to repent. We can see where we went wrong in the past, what we have made mistakes doing. We can see clearly where we honored God and perhaps where we didn't. So there's a, a great benefit to, uh, to that aspect of it. And one that I particularly appreciated, that it helps us to minister to others and to give hope. I have counseled many, many people over my course of ministry that have been so devastated by past events that they are literally paralyzed in the future. I, I mean in the present that they're very much feeling like they can never overcome their past, they can never get over situations or whatever, and that is a lie out of the pits of hell. And in Christ, we are never beyond hope. And that's one of the greatest things about being a believer. Nothing has happened to you that you cannot overcome. And that goes... That's true even when life hasn't been fair, because life is never fair, right? Even when you have suffered, perhaps unjustly as well as justly, there's nothing in the past that, that God doesn't make provision for. 
And we know that from Hebrews because we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with us, right? We know that in Christ, we have a high priest who sympathizes with our infirmities, who has suffered far more than we ever will, and who has promised never leave, to leave us nor forsake us. So we have to learn how to handle the past biblically so that it doesn't um, hinder us in the present. Now, before we get going, there's one thing I want to mention. I don't think I mentioned this last week. If you think about it, and I have found this to be true, most people spend far more time thinking about, meditating on, and obsessing over the past and the future rather than the present. I want to submit to you that we spend less time living in the present than we do living in the past and living in the future. So, for example, isn't it true that we get up in the morning and what's the first thing we do? What do I have to do today? So we're thinking about, well, I have this meeting at noon and at 4 o'clock I have to go here. And, and, and we're always thinking a little bit ahead, but we're never living in the present. Or we're medi- or when you get older, how you, you know, reminisce over the past. Like the past becomes much more... Magnify when you're older because most of your life is there. <laughs> you know, like I've realized there's there's more back here than there's going to be here as far as this life goes. Unless I live to be 128, then I'm only half I'm only halfway there. You won't know you're 128. I know, and if I'm 128, I'll probably wish I was. Right? <laughs> you won't even know you won't. I won't even know. Right, that's right. I'll walk out of one Starbucks and go right into another one. Right, like hey, let's have a cup of joe. So, okay, but the truth of the matter is, even at a young age, we can, we can spend a lot of time in the past, a lot of time in the future, but very few people are living in the moment and saying, okay, Lord, here is where I find myself right now, and this is very important for us to understand because we, we shouldn't live in the past any more than we should obsess and live in the future Now, that doesn't mean that it's wrong to plan. It doesn't mean that it's wrong to think about the past. But an obsession with either one of those two areas can cause us to just not live for Christ now. And we see the past being, we're exhorted in Philippians 4, where Paul says, remember, be anxious, starting in verse 8, be anxious for nothing, but in all things, through prayer and supplication, let your requests be made in known to God. We can be very anxious about past or future events and we don't really pay attention to the present. We don't really, um, we don't really think about where are we now in the present. When this was first presented, I thought, I never realized how much time I spend out of the present and in other areas. Now, usually with me, in a work sense, it's in the future. Like, I'm already thinking, okay, the service is coming, but I want to live in the moment because I may not have that moment in a minute or two. And I want to make the most of the time that I have. So that's just a little caveat to keep in the back of our minds. Uh, do we, yes, I'm sorry. Um, I Yeah, you it's are really so, hard. It's, it's a mental difficulty. It is. It really is. 
And you know what, Amber? I think what really hinders us in this culture is we are such a fast-paced society. We live at breakneck speed. And everything is make church, quick. You know, it's like, hurry up, in and out, in and out, in and out. And we are so used to being rushed, being overworked, overtaxed. We, we have lost the ability to be in the moment. And one of the things I think that is most lacking in the church today because of that, and this goes along with our study, is we have lost in our Christian faith the art of meditation. Even in our devotions, I got 15 minutes. And we'll read a passage, yeah, blah, 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 and then we're off. But we don't take time to sit and really let God's Word saturate. You know, years ago, when pastors would take a sabbatical, and I'm trying to keep this in mind, if I ever take another one, which I hope I will, they would go off by themselves with the Word and just meditate for a week, just go off by themselves and just with the Word of God for prayer and meditation. Now, and, and this, I'm not being critical here, but most churches, oh, you're going to take a sabbatical? Okay, we want you to read this book, we want you to write this paper, we want you to do this. And your sabbatical is so filled with, you don't even really have time to take a sabbatical. And we live in such a fast-paced society that we haven't learned how to slow down. I was talking with Pastor Chung this morning, the Chinese pastor, and he's going to be going to China soon. And he says he's got churches over there that are begging him to preach for three hours. They say, can you preach at least for three hours? Now, in America, <laughs> if I went out and I told everybody, today the message is three hours, everybody would probably get up and leave. They'd be like, you got to be kidding me. But, you know, the thing about it is, is that and again, I'm not, I'm not trying to be, you know, um, comparative here in a, in a negative sense, but what makes people want that is the ability to meditate, the, the ability to slow down and really drink in the Word. Um, years ago, when, I, uh, when Russia opened up, um, and uh, David Ray, a good friend of mine, went, and went to some churches in Russia where people would stay out in the middle of winter all night long waiting for the morning for the church doors open. They would camp out in front of the church all night long in the winter. And they would preach for 12 hours and the people wouldn't leave. I mean, they, they finished and the people would not leave the church. And again, you know, when you see David Ray said, I, I was weeping uncontrollably because he said, I've never seen anything like this, you know, hunger for the word. I know I'm getting a little bit off the the point here, but exactly, that's right, and 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 that's the point, right? It was after communism when they first, again, after how many 80, 90 years, had not had the freedom to do this, and the appreciation they had for being able to now be able to go into church and hear the word, they just didn't want to leave, and you can understand that, you know, after being so that was the case. So actually. What they were doing, they weren't focusing on the past or worrying about the future. They really embraced the moment and said, this is where we need to be. Absolutely. And that's exactly right. It was like, right now, I need to hear the word, and I want to be in the word, and, and that's the point. Yeah, that they were in the present. Amazing. You know, they didn't come in, and it's amazing, or lament, oh my gosh, you know what we've been through. It was like, okay, we're here. The word's being preached all day and all night long, and they just stayed. Um... That I would get me fired. <laughs> I said. 
that would definitely get me fired. If I said I was going to stay here for 12 hours, it'd probably get me fired. Okay. What's that? Yeah, or I'd be, I'd be preaching to the church mice, you know, because everybody else would be gone. Okay, so, um, and Deborah, for your uh, uh, um, case, I think we filled out the rest of those blanks, didn't we? Um, so, handling our past biblically, and did I, did I give those to you last time? I think we did, yeah. Our guilty past, let me just ha- get, do this for Deborah so you can fill them in. Do you see that under A down there? Um, unconfessed guilty past, if it hasn't been confessed, and it helps us to forgive, which is Matthew 18. So the word there is forgive. The next one, help us to apply truth. Just write them in, because I'm going to go over these again so we will get it. Helps us to repent, Revelation 2.5. And then helps us to minister to others and to give hope. So we talked a little bit about Obviously, the biblical concepts regarding the past. And then we came over here, and we said that there are four categories that we have to be concerned with. And let me uh, kind of, again, explain this as we think about our lives. Okay, We have, first of all, what we call our innocent past. In other words, where things happened in our lives and we had no control over it, or we weren't culpable in any way. We were innocent, and where we had an innocent past, where we responded well. And you remember, um, we said that in this category uh, concerning our past, could have been things such as authentic suffering, and I gave Psalm 73. Sometimes we suffered in the past through no fault of our own. It just happened. We grew up in very difficult circumstances, or we had events that occurred or happened to us that we had no control over. And so we know that there are times when God allows suffering, and it's not our fault necessarily. And, and you know, those are the times when we really need to depend on the Lord, we need to cry out to Him, Psalm 61. So here again, in our innocent past where we responded well, we're thinking about getting our comfort, seeking comfort from the Lord. And um, remember, I think we brought up the example last week, that when we are trusting in God... We are following the model of Jesus where we see in Scripture and we're told that he kept entrusting himself to the Lord. He kept entrusting himself to the Father. Remember that Jesus, at the end of his life, endured six trials before he was crucified. He endured three before the, before the Sanhedrin. And he endured three before the Roman proconsul. And in all those things, he was like a lamb being led to the slaughter. He entrusted himself to the Father. And what's so amazing about that is that this was God. I mean, Jesus could have would have worked. I mean, I don't know if I could have endured that knowing I had the power he had. But of course, he entrusted himself to the Father, realizing why he came. He was innocent. He suffered. He responded perfectly, not just well. So we need to seek comfort with the Lord. Also, we said we need to seek comfort with the Word. 2 Corinthians 1, 3-11. So that would be how we want to handle our innocent past. When we had things happen, we responded well, we can take our solace in the Lord. And remember what Jesus said. He said that my grace is sufficient for you. You know, that verse has meant more and more to me over the years as we start bearing the brand marks of our Christian faith, when we suffer injustice, when we're ridiculed for our faith, when we're ostracized, whatever the case may be, 
Isn't it a great comfort to know we can entrust ourselves to the Lord, that His grace is sufficient? And, uh, you know, Paul was annoyed because he had that thorn in the flesh, remember? Which was a person, by the way. You're going to see I'm right when we get to heaven. I don't think it was an illness. I think it was a person. <laughs> or persons. I heard it was kidney stones. <laughs> <laughs> Although, I might pray about that if I was back then. And it must have hurt back then, because I don't know what they did back then. You might have died from that. That could have been a very bad thing. Uh, so we find our comfort in the Lord. Okay, any questions on that one? Any comments? Or Okay, let's move on. Just quick review. And we didn't finish this one, by the way. So then we want to ask, okay, when we consider our pasts, uh, what happens when we were innocent, but, so we, no fault of our own, circumstances, events, but we responded poorly. And we can do that. We can have things happen to us that are not our fault, but we respond poorly. Now let's try to flesh out some examples of this, because I didn't do that last year. What would be an example of you having an innocent past where you responded poorly? Anybody want to think through that a minute? Can you re-ask that? Yes. What examples might we give where something happened to us in the past that we were innocent of? You know, we didn't cause it. We aren't, weren't to blame. But we responded poorly to the circumstance. Maybe you were abused somehow when you were younger. Okay. Um, and you became better. And there you, you go. A better life. There you go, for sure. Yeah, you, you, you had something happen to you very traumatic, you were abused, um, you suffered an injustice, but you became bitter, or you lashed out at somebody, or you're holding a grudge. Um, you know, so for example, we see this sometimes in married life, if a, if a man or a woman or both have had difficult relationships in the past, it's easy to say, I hate all men, I hate all women. And so what they do is they begin to hate everybody because that's they weren't to blame necessarily, but the way they're responding is wrong. Now this is a very big issue in biblical counseling because we see this a lot. Where something's happened to somebody and they become angry, they become bitter, they become resentful, they clam up, they blow up, they don't appropriate things right. This, there can be all kinds of examples. In a sense, their anger is is right because it is. Right, it can't exactly. But God obviously said, "Vengeance is mine." Right, exactly. He is the one who takes care of justice. Right, there can even be righteous indignation here, but again, anger, which is not always sinful, is it, it's important that we handle it properly because even righteous anger, if it's not dealt with, can turn into bitterness and sinful anger quickly. So would that be a precise case where be angry and sin not? Exactly. It would be. In Ephesians uh, 4. Yeah, where we see be angry and sin not. So what do we do when we sit here today and we think, okay, I had something happen to me. It wasn't my fault, but I know that I responded poorly. Uh, I lashed out at somebody or whatever. Okay, the first thing is, is we have to humble ourselves. Okay, humility is a, a wonderful, godly characteristic. And humility really is synonymous, in my opinion, with maturity. Mature Christians are going to show a degree of humility. 
When I see a Christian that has incredible pride, a kind of a resistant spirit, I see immaturity. I see Christian immaturity. Because that doesn't, we have to be humble enough to be able to look at ourselves and say, okay, you know what? I wasn't involved in this situation, but you know what? I didn't respond right. And the first thing, so we want to ask some questions. <laughs> and we said, okay, first of all, did you return evil for evil? You know, you did this to me, maybe through no fault of your own, so I'm going to get back at you. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to make you pay. And I see this all the time. People don't forgive because they, in their minds they're thinking, I want that person to suffer as much as I did. I want them to see how much they hurt me. I want them to see how much they made me miserable, and I'm not going to stop until they get to my level. Well, guess what? That's never going to happen. I've never, in all my years of counseling, had anybody come in and say, okay, I finally saw that they were suffering enough. I'm going to forgive them. <laughs> I've never seen that in all my years, and we're never going to see it because you never get to that point. Romans 12, 14 through 21. So don't return evil for evil. Okay, another thing, very common. Did, did, I, did I develop bitterness? What is, again, the difference between anger and bitterness, what's the difference? What did we say? Whatever? Okay. One might not be. The other one definitely is. Bitterness is unresolved anger. Or anger that turns sinful. Bitterness is that deep-seeding anger that you're going to hold. That you've decided not to do anything about, but I'm just holding it in here. Okay? Um, it's the type of thing where you hold it inside, I don't get mad, I just get even. And, you know, you hold a deep resentment. You hold a resentment that you're not willing to let go of. That can be very toxic, especially in marriage. Passive aggression. Yeah, it can be passive. That's right. Absolutely. And our verses there, Ruth 1, 20 and 21. Ruth chapter 1, 20 and 21, and then Ephesians chapter 4. Okay? Michelle, how are you? Good to see you. Hello, Kareem. Good job. That's a little infomercial in the yeah. Okay, so then we're talking about another thing. We said, did you develop uh, an unbiblical view of people? You know, we can have things happen to us, and we can lump all of humanity into our anger. Uh, when someone walks into a bank and shoots eight people, they don't even know. And this is happening all the time, right? Then we see that, you know, something happened to some person, they handled it poorly, and now they're going to take it out on everybody. And, or they're going to maybe not do something tangibly, but they're going to hold in their minds bitterness. Um, you know, so when... Well, I'm not going to use that example. Okay. Um, and then we see that that would be Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40, because I know my writing is pretty poor. Galatians 6, 10. I really need them. Some of you Okay, so let's go on in this. And remember I said that we didn't finish this. So that brings us up current. The next thing is, did you develop an unbiblical view of self? Did you develop an unbiblical view of self? Whoops. forgot about three words there. I can't even <laughs> I should have Sabrina do this. She's an artist. 
Okay, did you develop an unbiblical view of self? And this is Romans 12, 3. Somebody want to read that? And will someone tell me when it's like 10 after? Okay, I've got to keep moving. Okay. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Okay, that's great. So there are two things that we have to be concerned about when we talk about if something happened to us in the past that we're innocent of, but we responded poorly. First of all, we can have a pity party for ourselves, can't we? Oh, man, this should never, you, you know, life is so unfair, and I don't deserve this, and listen, I'm good at that. When I start thinking of myself, when you start thinking too much of yourself, and you see injustices as something that should just absolutely paralyze you, you're going to be in a very dangerous place. You know, nobody appreciates me. I should be making more money. You know, I, I, nobody cares. You know, we can really have those pity parties for ourselves, and we can get very bitter. And, and we feel we deserve more than we do. And like I said, if we really got what we deserve, we would be in big trouble. It's a good thing we're getting what we don't deserve, which is God's grace. So we have to be careful not to think too, too uh, negatively about a pity party but then not to think too high of ourselves. You know, we can go the other way, and we can get very self-righteous, can't we? You know, that, that these people just don't understand my value. We can get very prideful. We can get very arrogant. Um, sometimes when people get mad over things that have happened to them unjustly, they get prideful and arrogant. It's like what they want to say is, I'm going to bring this back and, and put it in your face. And again, you're going to pick up on this in a counseling setting by the responses you get. So if you say to someone, okay, tell me about that incident that happened, just by their body language and by their words, you're going to be able to tell, are we in any of these issues right here? You know, you really have to pay attention to that, not only the words, but the body language. Well, they obviously don't understand my talent. You know, that's something you're going to have to deal with, the, a pride issue. You know, you're going to have to deal with that so they see it right. And again, we don't have to think too highly of ourselves. We need to think of ourselves rightly. And remember, and I want to say this over and over again, as Jesus endured his trials, he kept entrusting himself to the Father. Life is not fair. And if your goal is to make life fair, you're going to go through life miserable. If your goal is to say, God, I believe in your sovereignty, I'm going to do everything I can as far as it depends on me, but at the end of the day, after I've done all I can, I'm going to entrust myself to you. That's the place to be, okay? And by the way, you guys know if you have any comments on this, just go ahead and interrupt me. Yes? So is, is it, would it be reasonable to, to say in a different way that um, that's a spot where you, you're examining the person's ability to be content with what the Lord has given that person? Especially, especially, especially in light of the fact that what you said earlier, we, yes. we all deserve hell. So exactly. this notion that I didn't deserve this is, is theologically false. That's a very good way to put it. That's a great summary. That's exactly right. And, and, it's, and it's that point where we're, 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 we're helping that individual we're counseling to look in and say, okay, how are you seeing yourself? Right. You know, because sometimes that's the problem out here. It's starting here. Remember what I said. Everything is a heart issue right. at the core. It's all a heart issue. 
And that's going to affect the way a person sees himself or herself and the way then they're responding to others or to the situation. Um, and that is very much in contrast to the way that our culture believes what we deserve. Exactly. We deserve the American dream Absolutely. that we live in America. Right. So we have that conflicting right. pressure on us. Oh, we do. Our culture slaughters us here because yeah. it's all about self. Our culture is about me, myself, and I. You deserve, yeah. you should get. Yeah. I'm going to be talking about that in the message today. That's our culture. Yeah. You know, look at the magazines, Ego, you know. Okay. Anyway. All right, there's another thing. Did you confront the abuser if appropriate? Did you confront... Did you confront the abuser... Now, abuse comes in many forms, so we're not limiting this. Uh, if appropriate. And this is Matthew 18, 15. Oops. Matthew 18, 15. Uh, I know you're not going to read this, so let me, because I can't read it. <laughs> Did you confront the abuser if appropriate? I'm going to have to sit on the chair to get down. <laughs> now, sometimes this is possible, and sometimes it's not possible. Um, if an injustice has been done to you and you have the ability to try to rectify that situation, especially if we're dealing with believers, then you want to do everything you can to rectify the situation. And, you know, as much as it depends upon you, you want to be at peace with all men. So if you have the ability or there's a possibility for you to reconcile this, um, you want to do that. Now, why is that the best option as opposed to just walking away and saying, as I hear often in counseling, well, you know, let's just let bygones be bygones. Why is that not the best option? Why is this the better option? Because not confronting it is the first step to unresolved anger. It sure or can it be. be. It sure can be, absolutely. That's one good reason. Anybody else? That's one good reason, yeah. The reason we want to do this if we can is because this avenue, if it's successful, will bring not only closure to a situation, but it can bring restoration. Okay? Understand this about counseling. If there is no repentance, there can never be restoration. We can offer judicial forgiveness, which says that, look, I choose to forgive you. In other words, I'm not going to be angry about something. I'm not going to necessarily hold it against you. And I'm certainly not going to take any action to hurt you. But if, if you have sinned against me and you're not willing to repent, then there can't be restoration. Now, in a marriage, this is absolutely vital that this happens. But it also needs to happen outside of that. Now, let me give you an example in my own life. I grew up with an alcoholic dad. We had a very bitter relationship, especially in my junior high and high school years. I mean, my dad was, my, my memory of my dad in those years is this, nothing. I, I, there is no memory, because he just wasn't. When I got older and, you know, began to understand the faith and began to talk with my dad, eventually my dad came to Christ, which was a miracle that I never thought would happen, me of little faith. 
But I had some real bitter feelings about some things that my dad had said to me, and I confronted him about that. And I said, Dad, there's, there's something that I need to talk to you about. And we hashed it out one day for about an hour and a half. And, you know, he asked my forgiveness, and it was the most cathartic thing in the world because I was finally able to let that go. And again, I wasn't holding anger or bitterness in the sense of I want to hurt him or I want him to, but just the hurt inside of knowing that, you know, there's something here that's just not right. My dad asked me forgiveness for that. I forgave him. It was over. And my dad finished well. Was he a Christian when that happened? Not, not, oh yeah, when he asked forgiveness? Oh yeah, he was a believer, but, but the incidents happened before he came, you know, when he was drinking and bad time. So what I'm saying is, you know what, I was able in that sense to go back and to talk to my dad about things that had happened years ago and we were able to get it right. Um, I have a question about this and sure. some time that I sort of, yeah, sort of uh, don't understand, I guess. Um, growing up, I was taught that you don't have to forgive someone if they haven't asked you forgiveness and that's wrong. It's wrong because Matthew 18 clearly tells us that both the one who has been sinned against and the one who has sinned both have a responsibility. So, for example, if you've been sinned against um, and that person that's sinned against you isn't saying anything, or you have an obligation to go to them and say, you know, uh, we have a problem here, and try to reconcile that. So there's a burden of responsibility both on the one who's sinned and the one who has been sinned against. So if you haven't sinned so against, that's wrong counsel. Okay, if you haven't sinned against, you should forgive them as a believer, um, even if they haven't come out and, and asked forgiveness, or if there was no. If yeah, if they, if they haven't seen their own sin, then right. you should forgive them basically. This is a real sketchy area, and, and let me tell you what I believe biblically, and I think Jay Adams really hits this in his book. Uh, being forgiven and forgiveness. I would hope that as believers, no matter what happens between us and someone else, that we would be able to render a judicial forgiveness at the very least. Right. Can you define that? I will. I'm going to define it. A judicial forgiveness means that even though there's been no change in the status of this problem, I'm choosing by my will not to hold it against the person in the sense of being vindictive or, or being vicious or wanting to go after them or holding my own inner anger, which is sinful and bitterness towards them. Remember that you always, at the end of the day, are only responsible for you. You have no control over what another person may or may not do. But here's where it gets serious. As far as restoration goes, there can be no forgiveness. Jesus didn't forgive anybody that didn't come to him and save them. So what you need to help people to understand is, look, if there is no repent, if there's no repentance, there can be no restoration. And that's a dangerous thing. So the relationship can't be restored without genuine repentance. And this is so critical that the scriptures teach us, if this happens in the church, we're taking a person through church discipline until we get this right. Because we're not, we're not okay with that. Like if two believers came and there was a sin committed and that believer said to us, I'm not going to rectify this. 
we're not going to be okay with that as an elder board. Right. Because that doesn't represent Christ. So when you are called not to forgive your enemies, for example, those who are unbelievers, you basically say this is up to the Lord and how he wants to deal yeah. with their sin. Well, with unbelievers, it's a lot easier. Simple. <laughs> it's true. Because they're blind to the truth. So for unbelievers, whatever sins they may commit against us, we're looking at it more in an evangelism type of thing, that they're, they're in darkness, they need Christ. I don't take too much offense to what unbelievers do because they're just doing what unbelievers do. They're sinning. And that's all they know how to do. Unbelievers do not know and cannot get out of them from being under the condemnation of God. So, so I can extend a lot of grace there because I understand they're blind to the truth. With believers, that's not acceptable. Because a believer needs to understand that, look, for example, if you came to me and said, Jack, you, you, you offended me. You know, you said something to me or maybe I did something to you, I would beg your forgiveness. As a believer, my heart would be broken by that, and I would want to say, you know, oh my goodness, let me ask my friend, I'm so sorry, I, you know, if I hurt you, or I did something unnecessarily, I, I would, I couldn't live with myself till I got that right. That should be the heart of a believer. Um, and, you know, if, if there is a a schism in the church, we can't let that go. Because that's a testimony to everyone else in the church that we just don't want to live. So that has to be dealt with. And that's a serious issue. Why? Because we want restoration. It's the same thing in a marriage, even more so. Listen, judicial forgiveness is the kiss of death in a marriage. There's got to be restoration. There's got to be repentance. There's got to be restoration. If the two are going to become one. And, and in the church, are we not the body of Christ? I mean, look, have you ever been in a church where it's nothing but one big schism, where this one's backbiting, this one, this one's mad? That's what Paul, remember at Corinth? And Paul said, look, this isn't going to fly. And Paul spent three years in Corinth getting this straightened out and said, look, this is not okay. And we can't accept that in the church. You know, we're a family, and we can have our spats, and we can have our difficulties in marriages, and we can get even angry at one another, but we're not okay not to deal with that. So that has to be, you know, we have to be able to approach one another, and God says that's not just a suggestion, that's a commandment. If your brother sins against you, well, maybe you should go to him. That's not what the Bible says. No, you go to him. Okay? So, very important. I, I need to clarify something on this. Sure. So the judicial forgiveness, I get that part. That, that is us making sure that this is not, it's us being Christ-like and, and forgiving <coughs> our enemies and all that stuff and not letting that turn into bitterness. That's, that's the Correct. part that we can control. I we can that. control that. I get that. But I'm confused by what was said about not forgiving because what you just went through really described restoration, reconciliation, and, and all of that stuff. So... Like that seems it seems it seems reasonable for me to consider that separate mm -hmm. than than the forgiveness that I can control on myself. So regardless of whether or not, and, and I also know I have a responsibility to to confront a believer, all that. But was there some part in there that said that there's forgiveness tied up in there? Because I because I'm, I'm viewing forgiveness as the thing that I can control, and then there's reconciliation. Restoration, right. reconciliation, exactly. church discipline, all that. There's 
Are you saying that there's forgive there's a forgiveness tied up in, in the outcome of that? Because of yeah, let me straighten this out. Okay. okay, let me straighten this out. I, I, I see your question. And I'm going to work this backwards, and I think that'll clarify it. There are times when we cannot bring reconciliation about it. So, for example, let me give you some examples of this. Let's say that you had trouble with a believer and he moved to Hong Kong or something, okay? Chances are you're not going to be able to re reconcile that. Or if it's somebody outside of the church, or, you know, there are a lot of situations or somebody passes away, or someone, let's say, just refuses to talk to you and runs away. We get that all the time. We've had people do sin in this church that have quit the church and left, and they won't talk to us. In spite of our efforts to contact them, believers, they will refuse, don't call me, you know. So there comes a point where we can't, we can't change that. Right. Now, in a case like that, can we offer judicial forgiveness? We can. Yeah. I can choose not to hold it against them, okay? Because there's times when I just can't, this is impossible, for whatever reason. When you say hold them against them, you mean God taking care of them? Yeah, right. Like, I'm not going to hold personal anger and bitterness as though I'm the judge of their souls. And I'm not going to let it affect me so that I become negative and live a life that is, um, you know, right. unchristlike with everybody else. Now, here's the thing. In the church, we're never content with just judicial forgiveness. Correct. We should never be content with that. Okay? In marriage, we're absolutely not content with it. In the church body, we're not content with that. Why? Because... If we have a situation in the church among believers where there's a problem, the goal is always to bring about forgiveness and restoration. Okay, that is the norm for the Christian. So I would not be okay with somebody coming in from our church and just saying, oh, Pastor, uh, you know, I, I had this confrontation with so-and-so, and, you know, they uh, really hurt me, and they did some sinful things, but I'm just going to... Uh, I'm just going to let bygones be bygones, you know, because I'm supposed to forgive. I'm not okay with it. That's not what we're going to counsel them to do. What we are going to counsel them to do is to go to that person first, to follow the mandates of Matthew 18, and to get involved as deeply as we need to, sometimes we don't need to at all, until we can bring that restoration about, you see? So, it all depends on what's possible and what isn't. Now, if somebody leaves the church, typically what happens in the real world, Jeremy, People don't like church discipline. That's not a fun thing. Mm -hmm. And so they get angry and they leave. And we've had this. We've had families that we thought were pretty godly families, actually. And I'm not mentioning you, who just left the church. Got mad about something, refused to talk to us about it, held a grudge, got bitter, left the church. And in spite of our efforts at reconciliation and calling, they had wanted nothing to do with us. At that point, there's nothing we need to do. Yeah, so I'm hearing you say judicial forgiveness in the church is, is, is the last resort after going through all those other means. Exactly. But, also, but we don't want to be sit, we, we never want to be content with that. Exactly. So, but I'm also not hearing you say that there's a situation in which I'm allowed to not forgive. Exactly. Okay, I'm going to be. Yeah, and and you know there, right? The, the the difference is there has to be repentance before there can be restoration. Right. And, and that's the goal of the believers. We don't want to just have a tip and say, well, we're both get over it. We want there to be reconciliation. In other words, if I've offended you, I want to beg your forgiveness so there's nothing hindering our intimate relationship with Christ. So there's nothing we're holding on to here. Norm? What passages would you quote for judicial forgiveness? 
Uh, I would quote when Jesus was on the cross and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus did not hold genuine anger toward the unsaved. Jesus actually had incredible compassion for the unsaved. And remember that the Lord said that he wished all, none to perish, but all to come to repentance. There's judicial forgiveness. God doesn't want those to perish. Um, Jesus' words on the cross, I'm, I'm just trying to think off the top of my head, I'm probably not giving you very good verses, but there are many times when, um, you know, and I think we see it more in the life of Christ, uh, I think we see it in the Apostle Paul when, remember, when Paul lamented over the unbelief of Israel, he said, I wish I myself were accursed for the sake of my country. In other words, there was a love there. Paul ached at the fact that there wasn't restoration between those in Israel and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, I wish God it were possible that I myself could be a curse for their sakes. Paul could offer judicial forgiveness. He, he loved his countrymen, but he realized that, you know what, there's not restoration there. What about uh, Romans 12, about 17 to 21? Would that apply? Uh, I, you'd have to read it. <laughs> Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far it depends on you. Live peaceably with all. Exactly. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Yes. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, yes. if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, Amen. give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will keep burning coal in his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil. Yeah, that would be perfect. Exactly. We, we're never given license to do evil or wickedness to anyone, no matter what the situation is. We are not given license to sin against them and to, and to respond that way. So, yeah, that would be It would be uh, judicial forgiveness in action. That's right. Absolutely. Uh, Judge. Yeah, very good. I'm trying to formulate this in my, my head, but um, judicial forgiveness me if I'm wrong, but couldn't it be if we're trying to reflect and um, strive to be more like Christ, um, judicial forgiveness could be a sort of, um, quote, common grace that's provided to all. Yeah, sure, it could right? be. So yeah, it could be. That's everybody deserves that judicial forgiveness, but it's not up to us at the end of the day if the person doesn't want to... No, it's not up to us. Exactly, and it's... And you leave it then to the wrath of God. Absolutely. Um, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, and right. I will rest. So, right. That's right. You leave it to the Lord. You, you know, as much as it depends on us, we try to be at peace with all men. Right. But sometimes there's not a cooperative effort there, and there can be hostility or, or downright resistance. And at that point, you know, remember what Jesus said when he sent the disciples out two by two, remember, to witness. And what did Jesus say? If you go to a house and you're not received, what are you to do? Shake the dust off your feet, right? And Right? In other words, if, if, if they're not going to receive you, then you do the best you can. Yes. Thank you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're really blazing a trail here. I was hoping to get all this done. Yeah, it's been a year. <laughs> I know we could. But if we're learning something, right? I mean, yes. It's not, yes, it's yes, not it's how fast big, we go. And you know how much I have blazed the trail. Sorry. I've, I've been wondering about this for years, so this is a very good topic. Okay. I'm very sitting easy. down to write this last one because I'm too... All right, so let's just get this last one up. At least we can finish this box, all right? Okay. You're outside the box. I know I am. I'm outside the box. That's typically where I find myself. Have you, have you practiced 
Biblical forgiveness. Now, we've kind of been talking about this. Have you practiced what? Have you practiced biblical forgiveness? Are you sort of contrasting judicial and biblical? <laughs> is, is, that, is that what you're doing? Is that two dimensions? And this is Ephesians 4.32. Okay. Have you have you practiced biblical forgiveness? Now, what I want to focus on here, and we, we've talked a little bit about this already, but the focus here in biblical counseling, if you're counseling someone, typically when a person has an innocent past, they're going to talk the majority of the time about the offense committed against them, right? So they're going to be talking about, this guy did this, and this is what happened to me, and I didn't, you know, it's going to be a lot of that. And you want to get them to the, to the point, okay, what have you done to be proactive? Now, the biblical mandate for this actually starts in Matthew 18, because remember, if your brother doesn't come to you and ask forgiveness, then you have an obligation to go to him. And what you want your counselee to see, counselee to see is that, look, if, if, if things aren't going well, have you been, what have you done to practice biblical forgiveness? And a lot of times in a counseling, you're going to see, but I was innocent. It's not my problem. They need to come to me. Well, they should come to you, but if they don't, it's your responsibility to go to them. Now, that's revelatory for even a lot of Christians. They don't, they don't see that. When do you give up? So I, <laughs> <laughs> I know, like, oh, I gave up about five years ago. <laughs> I have a particular individual who sinned against me, right? Yes. And she did the whole flight thing that you mentioned. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And obviously, I don't know where she lives, but I have her email address. Okay. And I sent her three emails over the course of the time with no response. And at which point, I then sent a text to a sibling of hers, um, seeing if that particular individual could help. Right. Because uh, he's very, you know, godly, mm -hmm. you know, person. At least I thought so, you know. And no response from him either, so I sent another text to him, and then his response to me was, uh, I can't help you, leave me alone. <laughs> okay, yeah. And so... Yeah, that's hard, yeah. So, like, at what point do you just... Yeah. Be like, everything? Well, you know what, that's a great question, Sabrina, and here's what I would say. I think there was a point where you literally cast pearls before swine, uh, and, and I think that there is a point where you have to say, look, I've made every effort that I can make. And I don't think it's right to continue to nag or have to hound or continually go after. Jesus didn't teach that. Like the rich young ruler, when he wanted to know, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus said all these things, and he said, I've done it, done it, done it, done it, done it. And then he said, go sell your possessions to the poor, come follow me. Oh, I can't do that. And, and the rich man walked away. Jesus didn't go, wait, 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 you're so close, let's stop. Jesus let him go. And he said, it's easier to put a camel through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man. Now, why did Jesus say that? Because he knew the man's heart. He wasn't ready. He wasn't open. He wasn't willing. And I think that you have to use, in a sense, sanctified common sense here. If you've done everything you can and you're getting resisted, then leave it alone. And here's another thing you can do. With it. You know, you can continue to pray for that individual, that God will bring circumstances in their life. Because I've seen it in counseling where maybe a year down the road, there might be conviction. 
But I don't think it's incumbent upon you to continue to go back over and over and over again. That's where you have to have the judicial forgiveness and say, for my sake, mm -hmm. you know, I'm going to... I have forgiven her. Exactly. I just, and then you, know, you move on. I'm just shocked that she has no desire to yeah. be restored. Is she claimed to be a believer? Okay, see, that's really, yeah, and that's a serious thing. The only other thing you could do is to admonish her with maybe a letter and saying, here's what the scriptures teach. But I don't think, I have done that. yeah, then I would let it go. I mean, personally, I would let it go at that point. And treat them, yeah, exactly. You know, if they refuse every avenue of church discipline, then you have to just yeah. let it go. Treat them as an unbeliever. Because the profession probably isn't valid. Yeah. You can't forgive. Deborah, did you have a, a comment? Uh, did you have your hand up? I didn't. Okay. I have a thought, but I think the time's too close. Okay. <laughs> well, all right. I'm so, I'm so, man, I thought we'd be through this and have time. I thought, how am I going to fill this whole class up, you know? Well, pastors, why say in 10 words what a pastor can say in 150, right? That's, that's how it always. All right. Well, let's close. And then, uh, Deborah, I hate to cut you off, though. Okay. You sure? All right. All right, well, Father, we thank you for, again, this uh, good discussion. We just know this is a very relevant and important issue in our lives, Lord. This is a very practical, uh, these are practical situations that we face every day. And, Lord, we pray for your help and discernment. I understand, Lord, that so often in the midst of needing forgiveness or rendering forgiveness, there can be raw and hurt feelings, there can be bitterness and pride and resistance and Lord, it's very difficult, but we need to keep entrusting ourselves to you to do what's right, to be peacemakers as much as we're able, and then to trust you with the rest. And so I pray that um, we'll be able to counsel others adequately in this area, that we'd give them encouragement and hope, and Lord, that you would be honored through our efforts. And we ask that always in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Well, thank you, guys. We'll get next time. We'll... Uh... Yes, you're welcome. Hopefully we can save the board again. Oh, you can keep it there. That's yours. Oh, these are extras. Oh, okay. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I was going to. Thank you.